Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today we speak with Patrick Hanley. Patrick works at the Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., where he serves as the Director of Good Manufacturing Practices for Immunotherapy. He is also a co-founder and vice president at MANA Therapeutics, a cell therapy company harnessing our immune cells to combat cancer. He is an expert in designing and manufacturing cell therapies and was once a fierce competitor on the Houston indoor soccer circuit. We talk about the leaps and bounds of progress in cell therapy and the challenges, including discovery, manufacturing, and distribution that lay ahead. Let's get right into it. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm here with Dr. Patrick Hanley. Patrick is the Director of Good Manufacturing Practices for Immunotherapy at Children's National and uh, George Washington University. He's also a founder and vice president of a new and exciting cancer cell therapeutics company called Mana Therapeutics. Patrick, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So why don't you, let's start with either or. Let's start at Children's National and GW. Tell, tell us a little bit about the center you, where you work and, and who all is there and what you guys are up to. Yeah, sure. So we are a cellular therapeutics program uh, that started in 2013 under the direction of Dr. Catherine Bollard. Three of us, or a number of us, but three faculty members moved from Baylor College of Medicine in 2013 to, ex- to start this new exciting journey. And I'd say there are about maybe 12 of us when we first started, and now we're up to probably more than 40 people who all work on different cellular therapies for cancer and a number of various diseases. Wow, that's a pretty big group now. And how is the group organized? So I introduced you as being the head of GMP, of Manufacturing Practices. Can you talk a little bit about the different kind of divisions and sort of how the labor works? Yeah, sure. So obviously, like I said, Dr. Ballard is our programmer and center director. And then there's a couple of directors who are involved in different stages of development. So we have a translational research laboratory that's under the direction of Dr. Russell Cruz and Dr. Michael Keller. Uh, and they do very basic science discovery. So, hey, I found a new way to generate T cells that can target, I don't know, pick your favorite virus or pick your favorite cancer. And what happens then is they work closely with my team and also the regulatory director for me to hawk. And we say, okay, you know, we want to translate this to a clinical trial. And so here's what we need to do to do that. So Famita is intimately involved in the regulatory strategy for that. You know, here's what the FDA is going to require, that sort of thing. And our team says, okay, so you have this strategy for making the T cells that target, let's just use um, leukemia for example. So you want to target leukemia with these T cells. Uh, We looked at your process. It looks like it's pretty straightforward, uh, but we noticed that you use fetal bovine serum in your manufacturing. Well, there are certain regulations that say that you need to use uh, U.S. herds for that fetal bovine serum or from New Zealand. Um, And so we we do kind of that risk-based analysis to make sure that the way you're manufacturing is in compliance with good manufacturing practices, in particular for phase one, because there is a sliding scale of GMP. 
Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I was, you know, reading the other day, and this is something that a lot of us who come either from the just laboratory research side or the data side don't think about, but so much of our, our kind of future of precision medicine is biologics, and biologics is a really big manufacturing challenge. You know, it's a, almost a whole new set of things that a lot of us hadn't really thought about before. Yeah, that's right. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the new FDA chairman, Scott Gottlieb. He's actually come out and said, you know, traditionally, it's been 20% manufacturing for new drugs and 80% of the clinical protocol. Now with these new biologics, such as CAR T-cells, chimeric receptor T-cells, two of which were approved last year and their first cell and gene therapies approved ever by the FDA. But these products are now 80% manufacturing and only 20% of the clinical study. And uh, I think that speaks well to what you're talking about here is, you know, personalized medicine is just sort of turning traditional pharma, uh, pharmaceuticals on its head. Yeah, no, I mean, it's incredibly exciting. Let's talk a little bit about those FDA approvals. So I followed that as well. There were uh, two CAR-T therapies approved last year. Should we expect that to be sort of an opening of the floodgates and we'll see lots more of this? Or are we still at a point where these are sufficiently hard to develop and prove that it's going to kind of new therapies will trickle in for a while? Yeah, so I, I think it's probably going to be both. I think there's going to be opening of the floodgates. There's going to be a number of new approved therapies in the next year or two, one of which will probably be from Juno. So it'll be the third CAR T cell that's targeting CD19. B-cell leukemia, it's an important disease that we need to find uh, a way to cure. But let's be honest, there's still only a limited number of those patients that we can treat. So if we have three CAR T-cell products that are all treating the same diseases, that's not going to be beneficial for the system. I, I should point out that they are three of the same types of cells, but they probably will likely target different indications. So uh, Kimraya, which is from Novartis, is targeting uh, refractory and relapsed leukemia. Yes, CAR which is from Kite Gilead, is targeting DLBCL type of lymphoma. Kimraya did get a secondary approval for DLBCL, but you can see where I'm going with this is, you know, they're, they're still targeting a very small subset of hematologic malignancies. And so, you know, the holy grail is twofold uh, for these CAR T cells anyway. Solid tumors, because there's a lot of different types of solid tumors. And the second is an allogeneic approach. So Right now, this is truly personalized medicine. So every patient gets a, a different cell and those cells come from, from their own body. But the allogeneic approach is let's make a bank of these cells and then they'll be immediately available just like, just like aspirin, just like your chemotherapy. Those are already in the bank and ready to go. Interesting. Uh, so, so basically turning these into almost what we think of more as drugs rather than, than something where a patient has to go in and have their own cells pulled out and engineered and so forth. That's right. And I'm not saying that they have to be allogeneic. I think that there is utility in a lot of these modalities. But right now, these things are expensive, right? So right. Kimraya costs $475,000. Yaskarta costs, I think, $373,000. And that's not cheap. Um, medicine is definitely getting more expensive. But no sort of groundbreaking transformative technology started out being incredibly cheap, right? You know, whether it be the Model T, as Bruce Levian likes to say, <laughs> or your television and computers, you know, all of these things were, were really prohibitively expensive. But now I think a lot of people can afford them. Sure. No, that makes sense. We're very much in the early days. How do you think uh, scientists in the industry think about developing um, sort of new cell therapeutics for diseases? Like how are the indications chosen? Is it a question of simply where we have the most scientific maturity or are there market considerations? I mean, I guess at SETI, how do you guys decide what to work on? Yeah. So in some ways it's a me too. Novartis came out with their C19 car and Carl June is a brilliant guy in, in that group was very successful, but there were five or six other teams who were developing CAR at the same time. And he picked the right consumatory domain to make it work. And then there was a lot of money thrown at it. And then you see a lot of other companies spawning up who also want to 
target C19 and other indications with the cars. But in terms of, of how you choose, right? So I think also it's where is there an unmet need? So um, I should point out that I am employed by Children's Hospital, but I we also have a startup, Monotherapeutics. And so my conflict of interest management plan dictates that I need to let you know when I'm speaking on behalf of which entity. In terms of the cars, it's a low-hanging fruit. So CD19, which is what the CAR T-cells target, it's expressed in a cell surface of those B-cell malignancies. And so it's very easy for an antibody or a CAR T-cell to recognize that tumor cell. And so that's why you see all these companies coming out the C19 CAR first as they secretly try and work on identifying targets for solid tumors. Interesting. Since, um, since you've already identified, we'll talk about mono, we can stay here for a little bit, uh, just so you don't have to keep switching back and forth. Um, tell me a little bit more about mono. So this is uh, Dr. Bollard and yourself, and who else is involved in this, in this company, in this project? Yeah, so Dr. Russell Cruz, okay, he's the, the director of our preclinical lab that we talked about earlier. And then, you know, we were really blessed to identify uh, sort of business co-founder, Mark Cohen. He's on the board of Dana-Farber, and, you know, he's sort of a serial entrepreneur, if you will. He's, he has a number of successful startup companies. He's the one who really pointed us in the right direction and say, here's the, here are the right steps you need to take so that we can get this to, to more patients faster. Yeah, no, he, Mark Cohen's uh, kind of a lion in the industry. We actually work with um, one of his portfolio companies in particular and pay a lot of attention to the kinds of things he says and, and what he does. He seems to be a kingmaker in this space. That's neat. And so you guys have, I'm, I'm looking at your website now. Um, this is monotherapeutics. And it looks like you have uh, plans to move into, as you said, solid tumors, the holy grail, and some secondary indications. Yeah, that's right. We also have uh, T-cells that are targeting um, a number of different viruses as well, our virus-associated virus malignancies. So, you know, we're still sort of in stealth mode. So mm -hmm. we're hoping to maintain that stealth for a little bit longer, but I think uh, big things are in store. Let me uh, just ask a scientific question, and this exposes how long it's been since I was actually in a lab and kind of reading the literature. For um, hematological cancers, it's kind of obvious to me how you might deliver sort of a cellular therapy. Does delivery become harder for solid tumors, or is it just a matter of injecting to the right spot? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think I'll answer it now with our current knowledge, but it, things could change, right? You know, if you're targeting a brain tumor, maybe it's necessary to utilize Namaya or something like that so you can go directly into the brain. Um, but right now, we're, we're targeting solid tumors that seem to be accessible just by just intravenous infusion. One of the beauties of T-cells is that they have receptors on their surface that allow them to home to sites of inflammation, which would be uh, include your tumor. Um, if you're using other molecules or even nanoparticles, they don't have that same homing. And so it's a lot more difficult. You have to give a more targeted approach to delivery. Uh, so you can program the T cells to not only um, hopefully kill the tumor, but find it first. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting studies in mice where you insert the tumor into one flank and you, you know, give the T cells IV or even into the other flank. And you can see that actually the T cells will then home to the, to the tumor site on the other flank and still eradicate that tumor, oftentimes finding the additional metastases as well. Oh, that's fascinating. So one of the, the aspects of, of cell therapy that's so exciting to me, and, and maybe this is, again, my incomplete understanding, but there's a promise anyway that once a patient has been treated with a cell that can recognize and kill their cancer, their body will continue to produce those cells and essentially cure the cancer. Is this true or is this at least in principle the goal? Um, how far are we scientifically from actually having a cellular cure for these, these tumors? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think I, I hesitate to say that it's similar to vaccination because I think, you know, there's a lot of unfounded stigma around vaccines, which again, are not true. But really what we're doing is we're doing the vaccine in our laboratory and then giving it the, the end product to the patient. And so we do expect these, these cells will be around lifelong. You know, we haven't been around long enough to know that for sure, but there are a lot of interesting studies with EBV specific T cells and, you know, EBV 
specific T cells are unique because not only do they target the virus Epstein-Barr virus, which is the kissing disease, causes mino, like uh, many of us have had, but it also can target tumors because a certain percentage, 40 to 60%, I think, of EBV lymphomas are EBV positive. So these EBV T cells can treat viruses as well as virus-associated malignancies. But where I'm going with that is these EBV T cells, um, some elegant studies by Dr. Helen Heslop, Cleodoroni, and Kath Ballard back when she was at Baylor, you know, they showed that these T cells persist in the body over 10, 10 years. And so that's quite a long time. And these studies were done in the early 2000s or, or mid 90s when you could actually modify a T cell with a gene just for the purpose of tracking that, that T cell. Imagine, you know, inserting a, a GFP protein into a T cell so that you could track it. You know, obviously the FDA doesn't allow us to do that sort of thing anymore, but these were done when it was still possible. And so they're able to, to look for that gene. It's not GFP, I think it's a neomycin resistant gene. But they're able to look for that gene over time in patients. And so as long as those patients are still living, we can try and detect those, those T cells that we know indubitably are derived from the T cells we infused and not from an endogenous T cell response. To the best of your knowledge, who are the, the sort of oldest patients who've had a, a T cell therapy? In other words, how long has it been since you know, the first patients were treated with this where we actually can have data on kind of the, the you know, longevity of a response? Steve Rosenberg at the NCI, I think he was highlighted in a number of recent articles um, in the Washington Post and, and others. Uh, he's treated patients in the early 1980s. I think what's the more common T-cell therapies really started in the early 1990s with Stan Riddell using cytomegalovirus-specific T-cells, that same trio I mentioned earlier, Cleo Rooney, Helen Heslop, and Malcolm Brenner using EBV-specific T-cells. And that, again, was in the, in the early 1990s as, as well as Rick O'Reilly. And so I guess now they're... 20 or 30 years out. And I think, I think it's fair to say that a number of those patients are still living. Well, I don't think I appreciated that it's such a, a rich history, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised because science typically does take a, a very long time to, um, to mature and come to fruition. Yeah, but if you think about the history of, of these T-cell therapies, it's only in the last, what, seven years, industry has really been involved. I mean, there's always been, you know, one or two startup companies, Dendrion, things like that, that have pursued vaccines mostly. But up in until recently, it's been a number of these boutique cell therapy centers that were doing the majority of the research. And in order to get a cellular therapy, you had to go to NCI, you had to go to Baylor College of Medicine or St. Jude, you had to go to Fred Hutch, or you had to go to Sloan Kettering or UPenn. And that's just how it was, right? And so now with the advent of CAR T-cells, everyone wants to be involved in cellular therapy. They see it as the next generation of therapies in, in this personalized medicine revolution. It actually brings me to a point that a um, topic that I discussed with a, another guest on our podcast, Aliyah Stupka, who's head of life sciences at uh, Health Catalyst. And you know, he's incredibly excited about the space too, but one of his kind of general concerns in the world is, is accessibility to treatment. And so you, you've talked about how these are now becoming more accessible, but you know, as long as the price point is in the hundreds of thousands, there's still going to be kind of a, a limitation. How do, you, how do you see the accessibility of, of biologics like this um, changing over time? What's your hope for people in, say, underdeveloped nations who you know, have just as much need as the rest of us who have access to MD Anderson? Well, I think right now we're all trying to fit these personalized biologics into a paradigm created by the FDA that was more suited for traditional pharmaceutical drugs, right? So tablets, chemotherapy, things like that. I, I have to give the FDA credit. I think that they're, they're doing their best to keep up with rapidly changing fields. And they've come out with things like this RMAT designation and breakthrough and, and all these other pathways that can make drugs get to the market faster. And so, so that has helped cell therapies, I guess, get to the market. But to it, I guess to answer your question is, there are other paradigms that we could try that would make these drugs much cheaper. 
right? So we're still asking Novartis to go to two facilities or three facilities and make every personalized medicine regardless of their location in the world, right? I think they'll probably have a couple more as they go into different countries, but it's a very centralized process. But what if that process isn't centralized? What if I were to develop a process at Children's National that is just an adjuvant to a bone marrow transplant and it didn't need to go through full FDA BLA approval, right? What if the FDA were to come to my lab and say, you know what, you follow good manufacturing practices that are suitable for this type of development. Um, we give you permission to give antiviral T cells or manufacture antiviral T cells and give them at your institution after a bone marrow transplant. And then we would just transfer that cost to the patient, right? So there's no middleman pharmaceutical food pharmaceutical company involved. And it would likely be a lot, a lot cheaper because right now we're actually doing that at a cost to us so that we can treat patients who are in dire need of these um, antiviral drugs. To get to your point about accessibility beyond just these specialized centers, you know, third world countries, developing countries, I think that's where we need to we need to create the infrastructure, but we also need to create these off-the-shelf products. This is going to be a challenge. I, I don't know that I have all the answers and how to do it. You know, all of our products are stored in liquid nitrogen. What kind of infrastructure do we need so that we can store these products in countries throughout Africa, throughout Asia, you know, South America? I don't know, but I do think that a third-party product would be much easier to implement than a truly personalized one product per patient approach. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think for that kind of distribution, it needs to be commoditized at some point. I have a, a question. This is shifting gears a little bit, but I'm curious to, to get your take. So for some of us who, who follow cell therapy kind of passingly and in the news, you know, the headlines, unfortunately, that stick, okay, they're the good news stories, but occasionally you'll hear about the kind of horror stories. And I, I think it may have been um, Juno or Kite who had a couple setbacks in some of their early stage trials. Now, I don't think this is un that unusual. And frankly, I think it, these kinds of setbacks are often the sort of costs associated with progress. But how as an industry do you all kind of deal with the occasional sort of black eye in the press? but also the very real risks associated with, you know, truly innovative treatments and therapy. Yeah, I think, you know, it is difficult to be innovative. Uh, but at the same time, provide a product that is going to be safe in every single patient 100% of the time. And that's a risk that we take. If you look at our patient population, the majority of the patients that we treat actually have already had a bone marrow transplant, which is very disruptive to the body, right? So without any additional therapy, a bone marrow transplant patient spends considerable amount of time in the hospital, sometimes in the ICU. And so they're, if they're getting one of our therapies on top of that, we don't know if the reason they have an adverse event is because of the bone marrow transplant, which often gives them these adverse events anyway, or if it's because of a product that, that we gave, right? And so differentiating between those toxicities is in itself a challenge. And, you know, is it fair to the patient that they don't get these potentially life-saving therapies because one patient out of, you know, 200 had an adverse event? You know, I, I think that that's something that we as society need to, to appreciate. And you know, some of the thoughts on addressing that are, you know, so we have an institutional review board who looks at all the toxicities. You know, we have to submit these toxicities to the FDA. So, so they're looking at it as well. And I know that IRBs often have community participants, but, you know, maybe that is an area where we have participants from the community come in, maybe from that disease population and say, you know, we, we understand the risks and, and here's what we're willing to accept. We're willing to accept grade one graft versus disease, maybe a little uh, cytokine release syndrome in the case of the CARs. But what we really don't like is the neurotoxicity. And actually, the neurotoxicity is often uh, reversible. That's the sort of thinking is, you know, we can set up what we are and are not willing to accept. But uh, like I said, a lot of those committees are already in place and they do review all the data. Having worked at you know Baylor College of Medicine and myself and and been around um, people associated with clinical trials, I actually have a lot of faith in the safeguards and the backstops put in place. And I think this is important for a general listenership to realize that you know some of these experimental trials may be experimental, but people are you know are not generally being reckless. Perhaps one recent CRISPR study aside. <laughs> That's right. Let's not go there. Uh, but 
leave that for another conversation. <laughs> I do want to put out too that for better or for worse, doing animal studies is often difficult or is difficult in this situation because when you have a small molecule, right? So you can have a, a murine model that has that cancer of interest, right? You can give the drug and see what happens, right? But when you have a biologic therapy, you need the human T cells to go into the mouse. And so in order to do that, you have to already have a very complicated mouse that doesn't have an immune system. And so then you can develop that cancer model in the mouse. But when you give our therapy, it's missing all the other cells that are naturally in the body, in the human body, right? So A, the T cells aren't going to work as well because they're missing a lot of the other immune cells that help orchestrate that response. And B, some of the toxicities that you might see because there are other immune cells present are not going to happen in that mouse because again, they don't have the human cells to work in concert with the T cells you infused. Certainly the case. And even with small molecules in mice, I mean, the, the joke, which is not even that funny, is that we've cured cancer in mice dozens of times. But there, you know, at least you have kind of a systems biology that, that makes sense. And, and certainly as soon as you start thinking about immune modulation, it's, it's a lot trickier. We see that with monoclonals. We see that with, with T cells and so forth. Let's shift gears a little bit more. So just as a disclosure to our listeners, um, Patrick and I have known each other for a while. I actually think we um, played on the same indoor soccer team sometime back in like 2011, 2012. Yeah, um, when we were both young. in Houston. Yeah. When, when he, I was never that fast, but I could get around a little better then. But uh, so anyway, I follow I follow Patrick on, on the social medias and I feel like I've seen at least two trips of yours to Iran. Is that right? Oh, yes. I just got back two Sundays ago. Tell us about that. What are you going over there for? And, and um, what's kind of the scientific community like uh, in that part of the world? I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to go to Iran twice now. You know, I think it's like any time you hear about people in the abstract, right? You, you uh, develop a stereotype. And then when you actually meet the people, you hopefully say, oh, well, this is not true at all. These are the kindest people I've ever met. And that's that's how I feel each time I go there. Uh, so not only are the people incredibly kind, but they're also doing really good science. And, and they're really hungry to learn about better ways to treat patients with cancer. You know, they're really into using mesenchymal stromal cells in a safe and appropriate way with clinical trials. And, you know, we're not talking about the stem cell tourism and things like that. Of course, that there are others that I, I don't want to talk about today. You know, I, I think all of our every country has their own issues and, and crosses to bear. But you know, from my firsthand experience, I think it was a really great experience, and, and I couldn't speak any more highly of the people I met. And, and what was the opportunity? Was it a conference or or sort of a, a visiting rounds or something like that? Uh, this last time it was the third national congress on stem cells and regenerative medicine, and then last year was a, a similar conference hosted by the Royan Institute. And uh, actually, I was in Iran when Kimraya was approved, and I think it was August. 30th, 2017. That's exciting. You know, it's for, for scientists like us, some of those dates are the kinds of things like, where were you during the moon landing? It's like, where were you when the first CAR T therapy was approved? <laughs> yeah, I was telling Iran that it just happened and it's going to cost 500,000 US dollars, which is uh, <laughs> okay, which, good news and bad news. Yeah, which, uh, let's see, in, in terms of reels today, that would be something like, you know, 5 billion reels or something. Yeah. Uh, have you gotten to do any other cool travel through your work? Yeah, so I'm involved with a number of different organizations that allow me to travel. So one of them, uh, I serve on the recently on the FACT Board of Directors. So FACT is the foundation for the accreditation of cellular therapy. Um, and this is really interesting. Uh, bone marrow transplant developed over the last, I don't know, 60 years, independent of FDA review. So even today, uh, bone marrow transplant is not under the direct review of FDA. Because of that, you had a lot of different programs with varying degrees of quality. And so some of the pioneers in the field developed this set of standards for uh, best practices, if you will. And they said, okay, let's try and bring everyone up to the same standard. And so you don't have to go to the MD Anderson or Mayo Clinic of the world to get good care. 
what they did was they set up these standards and they said, okay, we're going to hold everyone accountable to them. But by virtue of being an accreditation, it's a peer review process. We are fact accredited for minimal and more than minimal manipulation in our cell therapy lab. We have immunofactor cell accreditation for our hospital and just overall fact accreditation for our bone marrow transplant immune cell therapy program. But what that means is since I'm accredited, I can be an inspector. And so I get to go to other programs and inspect other programs. And I will say that I learn a lot from these inspections. So I probably learn more from them than they learn from me when I'm doing the inspection. But that's the beauty of it. You get to network with people. You get to see, you know, how, how does this group handle training? Because it's a big challenge for all of us. How do they do their audits? You know, do they go on site to every vendor and do a formal audit? Or do they submit a, a questionnaire, ask if they've had any 483s from the FDA and call it a day? So a lot of my travel or, or two travel trips a year is because of fact I get to go and do an inspection throughout the world. No, that's fascinating and, and probably a great way to spread your expertise and actually help others do this important work. Yeah, as we try and get more people to go into cell therapy, because there's certainly a shortage of qualified people, that is absolutely one of the perks is you get to travel the world for free and meet a lot of really cool people. Um, let me ask you to sort of put your, your mana hat back on for a second. I'm interested to to just hear a little about your experience so far with, with um you know, venturing into the world of startup, you know, having come from academia and then I guess academic clinical center sort of role. How are you finding it? How much time do you actually have to dedicate to it? Yeah. So it's exciting, right? So finding time to dedicate to it is not a problem because you want to do it. It's something I, I have trouble explaining, but when once you step into it, you're like, wow, this is fantastic. Um, you know, it's, it's like anything you're passionate about, right? You're passionate about it, so it isn't a problem. You, you look forward to doing it. Uh, it's not like me trying to go for a run in the morning. Not only can I wake, not wake up in the morning, but I also don't want to go for a run. So finding time is, is not a problem. Sometimes if I have to travel, then it becomes more of a problem, you know, taking calls. So I tried to take a call from Iran, but I couldn't figure out how to use my telephone. Um, so I wasn't able to take that call at 2.30 in the morning. But otherwise, you know, it's, it's just about time management. Um, typically, I'll, I'll spend whatever coming to the office between eight and nine um, and leave, you know, six, seven, and then I'll go home and answer all the money emails that have been accumulating throughout the day. But, you know, it's been such an exciting journey that I don't mind it. It's also forced us to really analyze all the data that we've accumulated over the last four or five years, which has been helpful as well. Yeah. And that was actually going to be one of my sort of next questions. Uh, and this is something I, I ask of a, a lot of people who either continue to straddle uh, two gigs where they, they have an academic position and also a, an entrepreneurial one. What do you find that the startup allows you to do that, say, is just kind of prohibitively bureaucratic or, or just not even possible in the academic life? Ooh, all right. Uh, move quickly. Throw money at things because we want it to happen tomorrow. I think that's the biggest thing. It's not just our startup company. You know, I asked someone once how many people they had on their process development team. I think this was one of the CAR T-cell companies. And, and they said they had 60 people just on process development. And I said, that is crazy because we have, what, 15 clinical trials at Children's. And we probably have 0.5 people dedicated to each trial in terms of the manufacturing. So, you know, that that's the difference. Um, yeah. If you want to get something done in, you know, given your, your budget and your timeline, then you just throw money and people at it and you solve that problem very efficiently. You know, I'm happy where I am because I get to be involved in both worlds. I'm not sure that I would be able to just focus on one small part of a big problem. You know, I like being involved in all the different parts. I definitely also enjoy the, the many hats aspect of it. But that, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, well, back in the day when I used to, to cook for a living, I would kind of joke the difference between cooking school and just going to the restaurant is in the, the former you get an onion to chop and the latter you get a box of onions to chop. So you get faster <laughs> doing one than the other. <laughs> that's true. No, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see 
Well, when you guys emerge from official stealth, it, it looks like you're off to a great start already. Definitely have a founding team to, uh, to be envious of. Yeah, I'm really happy. I think, you know, we wouldn't have done this if we didn't have the right people. And if we didn't want to treat patients, you know, I think uh, everybody wants to make money and things like that. But I think the biggest driver for us was there is a line of patients out the door that want that need to be treated at Children's, which are with our innovative therapies. And we just don't have the space and the people and the time to treat all these patients. And so we said we, we should start a company, find a different manufacturing facility and be able to treat these patients uh, with the therapy that we think is going to be transformative. Did you um, license out the technology from Children's or from Baylor or elsewhere? Yeah, so it's the license, uh, the IP is held at Children's and then uh, Mana licensed the IP from Children's. Gotcha. I don't need you to speak ill of your current uh, employer, but is that generally a, a model that Children's is comfortable with? Or do they have a history of, of kind of supporting innovation and, and tech transfer and so forth? Yeah, actually. Um, so they uh, a few years, 10 years ago, something like that, they received um, a $150 million gift from the Sheikh Zayed of the Emirates. And uh, with that money, one of the things that they did was they set up this Sheikh Zayed Institute for Pediatric Surgical Innovation. And the focus of that institute was actually to drive innovation and um, have spin-out companies for ways to do precision medicine that didn't involve surgery and things like that. And so they've really encouraged people to have startup companies, to have IP. Because of that, they've set up this this nice little incubator type program. That's really fabulous. And I'll just get on my soapbox and say for anyone who is listening from academic administration, if you want to attract the best young talent to teach and do research at your institution, support innovation. So Patrick, one last question. How do you see the the kind of assist from, from the movement in, in big data and you know public data commons and sort of applied mathematics and machine learning uh, helping cell therapy? Yeah, so that's a great question. I was I was recently in London for this pediatric innovations in healthcare meeting, and Tool Boot from UCSF gave this lovely presentation where, since he's in the California health system, he's able to take all big data and and basically analyze it, right, and say, okay, throughout the entire California healthcare system, these p- patients all got this frontline treatment for diabetes, and then how many patients then went on to the second treatment, and then a third treatment, and then a fourth treatment. And then using that big data, you can say, okay, well, you know, clearly this person that got this as a second therapy went on to seven subsequent treatments. So why the hell are we even giving that second treatment to begin with if it's not working for anyone, right? And so that was mind-blowing for me. So we can do that same information using our cellular therapies, right? So we can look at, okay, so this patient gets a bone marrow transplant, right? And here are all the patients who are going to relapse. Now let's give them our T-cell therapy and let's just say we target one protein does that work? What if we try two proteins? What if we try three proteins? And so using that big data and a lot of patients treated, we can figure out what the best way to approach is rather than just sort of trying to guess whether it's working or not. And um, one of the questions you asked earlier was persistence of these T cells. Well, one of the questions we're still trying to address in, in every therapy we do is, is one that was one infusion enough? Or if the patient responds, should we give a sort of preemptive second, third, fourth, fifth dose? And I think this is a way to answer that is using the big data, see if people go on to relapse. And in some cases, you don't even need to go and and do a follow-up with the patient because it's in the the medical record system. And as long as you have consent to access that data, you know the answer. Yeah, no, that's that's fabulous. And I I think that the more and more we can use real-world data and patient outcomes to inform both the development of and and delivery of these therapeutics, the the better we'll be. Patrick, this has been fantastically interesting. I I think you guys are doing... uh, great work over there and um, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. Yeah, I know. It's been a pleasure to speak with you again. This has been episode six of Talking Precision Medicine. 
please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.